Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. My name's Sam. And I'm Greg Elzinga. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Greg's joining us today to discuss his top albums of 2020 thus far. And we're going to drink some old beers. Very, very old beer. Yeah. How old are these? At least a decade, maybe more. And I think that we're going to use them as an opportunity to talk about uh, our experiences in craft beer and make uh, the old money tickers on Facebook uh, happy and jealous at the same time. There's nothing like a little envy, especially on the Internet. <laughs> All right. Without further ado, let's dive and get heavy, y'all. Welcome to Heavy Hops. I'm pretty stoked today. There's some Dark Lord on the table. There's some uh, bunch of old beer that I'm really stoked about drinking and that we were probably pretty happy to pull out for today. Too. <laughs> I'd say so. These fucking bombers from like 2009 <laughs> to 2012 where the brewer was like, here's 22 ounces of barrel-aged Imperial Stout that's 12 plus percent. Anywho, uh, <laughs> joining us today, uh, old friend uh, Greg Elzinga of um, Metal Vinyl Weekend and uh, of many things. If uh, you've ever had a beer in Chicago or it, at a Northwest Indiana brewery called Three Floyds, uh, Greg probably brought it to you or drank next to you. So, Greg, That's welcome. True. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. For those uh, who don't know you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, of course. Um, I grew up in Northwest Indiana. I bounced around the area a lot and we, um, my family was self-employed, so we kind of just went where the work was. And then, um, I ended up working at three Floyd's, um, after I had left Northwest Indiana, I moved to Chicago in pursuit, pursuit sort of, of, uh, live music and a little bit more, um, culture. So... Um, like in my early 20s, I moved to Bridgeport and I really kind of enjoyed that life. And I was at um, a house party with a friend and they uh, had some, they actually had a band from like a heavy metal band from Sweden playing in his basement in like a residential part of the Burbs in Northwest Indiana. And I hadn't seen this kid since high school. And so he was like, you should come up to this, uh, come up to this party we're having. And I was chilling up in the living or the like kitchen of the house. And this kid comes walking in with a case of gumball head and he looked real young. And, um, I just was like, Oh, this kid seems cool. I'll say hi. I mentioned that I liked gumball head. So he offered me one and we kind of sat there talking. And, um, I told him that at the time I was kind of still looking for work and wasn't really sure what I was going to do. And he, um, told me that they actually needed help. So I, he was like, I don't normally do this kind of thing, but I'll let you use my, um, name as a reference. And, so I went in there and uh, did, and I got a call back like a couple days later. And uh, it was super weird because I had no idea really that they even existed. I was like straight edge for a really long time. I grew up in like hardcore and punk and that kind of thing. And so right around the same time that I found Three Floyds was kind of right around the same time that I was deciding to give up on straight edge. I would... Um, not for any real reason. I just, I'd been that way for a long time. It was like eight or 10 years or something. I was pretty, uh, like militant straight edge. And then we found craft beer and it was kind of like a good excuse to like drink and not abuse. It was like culture where you could sip and feel sophisticated or whatever. And then that turned into abuse and we started <laughs> drinking like crazy. And I mean, uh, three Floyds, they were all a bunch of party animals. So it was really a natural habitat to 
start getting crazy. But um, but it was a, a good time. I really uh, liked being there, and they introduced me to a lot of music. I worked a lot of, around a lot of like like-minded people, and um, they were into more. I like I was still into a lot of punk when I got that job, and then they. Um, uh, slowly, little by little, we had all kind of incorporated um, our own personal tastes into like what we would play in there as far as music goes and that kind of thing. And we introduced, like, I actually, I'm pretty sure I found out about the Melvins because of that job. I like knew that they existed, but I'd never really like given them a, a listen. And um, they're like one of my favorite bands now. I actually have, it almost looks like I have a shrine to them in my living room if you're paying attention. That's like uh, framed, like the frames for these prints cost five times more than the, the actual print does it's a whole wall of them so um <clears throat> but yeah that um and then that being said then I also um like little by little we uh had grown and we ended up putting a, a turntable in at three Floyds and um I was definitely the most passionate about that happening and I started bringing in my own records and then that developed into the program that is now Metal Vinyl Weekend it um like we had a couple records that we kept in house and the brewers down donated some like kiss and white snake records and like stuff like almost like what we're doing with these beers here right now just, like, was that bogus giving you all that yeah 100 <laughs> percent. it's like rat and just uh like i i mean it's sure if you want us to play the stuff in here that's fine but uh, sounds like unloading to me yeah absolutely so <laughs> little by little we um we like just kind of put in our own taste and then um, it started becoming kind of regular that people would come up and ask for what the what the music was that we were playing, and um, they I don't even think they knew that we were playing vinyl. I actually created a whole like now playing station and things like that that started becoming something that the customers and everyone would even like bring people over when they would come to the brew pub just to show them like look they got this whole now playing thing in the vinyl and. It, um, like they nerded out on it way harder than I thought they were going to. So like rather than having to, um, and I also, I guess I kind of saw it as an opportunity if I'm being honest, I like started posting, um, slides on Instagram of all the records that I was going to bring in for the weekend. And, um, I would always bait, like every morning I would pick them out individually based off of however my vibe was for that day. So I would take like, 10 or 15 records at a time and I did that every morning like three days in a row because I worked like Friday and Saturday and Sunday for like four years straight or something like that so um, I would just continuously keep that updated and I had a pretty large heavy metal collection it's like 2,000 records or something like that and um, so it kept going for a while and people started using that as um, a resource to like show their friends and that kind of thing. And then um, I had also done a little bit of DJing when I was younger. Um, I started doing uh, like hip hop and uh, house music and that kind of stuff. But I was a teenager really young and I wasn't like that involved. I, I thought it was cool and I kind of did it for fun, but then I ended up selling my turntables. And then later on, um, a buddy of mine was doing a punk night at Maria's in Bridgeport and that was where I was living anyways. And so, um, and I, we hung out there pretty regularly. So he invited me to come and do a thing with him. His name's Stephen Kane. He's a popular punk dude from the area. And so we, um, 
we started a night called No Moderation. It was like um, we did uh, every like third Saturday of the month for a couple of years. That was really wild. We did like um, all, everything was punk on seven inches, so every song was like a minute long or something like that. And we did everything on vinyl, so like having to have everything queued up and. So you had like five crates of records you were bringing in every Saturday. <laughs> yeah, it was really outrageous. Like the amount of records that I had to pick to do a single gig um, was just completely outrageous. So, um, so yeah, it got me really in like speed for changing records at the brew pub and things like that. And um, then I ended up using that DJ experience to start with heavy metal, which I obviously opened up the doors for it to be a lot easier moving towards like seven and eight and 10 minute long songs and you get like a bathroom break half the time. So, um, but I, I DJed for dark Lord day and I, um, that went really well. And then breweries kind of caught on to that and other like-minded and like metal themed breweries started asking the same. So I did DJs for 18th street brewery and sound growler brewery. And then, um, I, I think that it might have been it for a little while. And then uh, Alexi and I actually collaborated and I helped him with Scorch Tundra. And um, we had done a couple of one-off gigs. I brought him into Three Floyds um, for like a small series of DJ events that I did there as well. Um, we brought in uh, Alexi. We brought in Bricktop Recording. We brought in um, Bucket of Blood Records. Um, it was a lot of fun that uh, was kind of right at the end of when I left the brew pub. So unfortunately that didn't really continue, but um, yeah, I've done a lot of DJing and um, uh, I also like cook a lot and I'm really into food and like uh, beverage. And I worked at the three Floyds distillery and I helped them with their program. there, building um, all their like housemade syrups and, and tinctures and basically anything that was um, not made in the distillery proper. So, um, which basically had to be everything because we didn't really buy anything outright. We made all of our own syrups. We made all of our own purees. We, like everything was done in house and I basically helped them run that program. And so little by little that's helped me develop my own brand as far as um, what I'm doing, which is kind of hard to describe, but sort of a weird uh, mishmash of heavy metal and beer and food and cocktails and I do some pop-ups from time to time and that kind of thing that are food related and beverage related so cool well let's uh since it's in front of us let's dig into the dark lord 2000 it's 2009 right 2009 the white wax uh so tell us a little bit even though that may not have been the same uh dark lord that you dj'd tell us a little bit about the experience of uh djing for that many people and uh, all that sounds like a terribly fun time. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, it was really wild. The first year they had um, a DJ that they've had for multiple years, uh, Jill Hopkins. She's uh, really popular in the Chicago area. Um, she's done it forever, and then I kind of expressed interest, and they um, they gave me like a tiny little side stage off, and they had expanded the grounds, and they really kind of wanted to extend the entertainment and the bands and the DJ stage and all that stuff was kind of on like the way far other side of the ground. So um, they gave me my own little area and I wasn't really entirely sure what they wanted me to play. So I actually, um, surprisingly enough, I brought like 
non-metal records. I figured everybody would be kind of like blown out on metal by the day. And plus, it's such a large fest. Like, uh, I feel like Nick doesn't really want it to be known as a metal festival. Like, I even though obviously that's a big uh, focus on what it is, it's definitely more about the beer. And you can see that in the guests that are there, too. It's really interesting because you get these beer nerds that come from so far and um you'll see all these uh like the beer share tables and things like that which if people aren't familiar dark lord day is like one of the only beer fests that i've ever heard of where you can actually bring your own beer inside i don't know if i'm if either of you guys have ever i mean bottle shares are definitely a fixture at festivals but it's typically like you said off the grounds and um in like the hotels where people are staying. Uh, but to have it in the festival is definitely uh, pretty rare. And I know that that's just like being on beer advocate forums and looking at the spreadsheets that all these people would have like, oh, I'm bringing this and I'm bringing that. It's like a whole, uh, I imagine if one person were to handle the logistics of all that, it would be almost as much as one large component of the festival itself. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I can't imagine like, <laughs> Um, I met a friend, uh, Marlene, she's from, uh, like Oakland area and, um, she came into the bar and had a like pea coat on and took it off and had like an inquisition shirt on or something. And it's like, Oh cool. We ended up making friends really fast. And it turned out that she's friends with like the whole metal scene in Oakland and like new Thrish and, um, ales and, uh, like the spirit and weakling and all those bands that are all like, I was already into that shit. And. So um, she brought a bunch of her friends out for Dark Lord Day the one year. And um, like, it's cool because you see these people that will tra travel like they would for um, Psycho Fest or something like that. Like it is obviously the metal is because it's not just um, I mean, like they've gotten high on fire to play for like six years in a row or seven years in a row or something like that. Just like some of the biggest bands in the genre, like. Amana Marth and uh, stuff like that. Sorry, I'm, I know I'm getting off subject for DJing, but no. the the, the <laughs> it's, festival itself is pretty massive. So yeah, it's huge. Like like you said, they get in all these huge acts, and you know maybe it didn't start off as a metal thing, but it's definitely kind of morphed into that just with the acts that they are bringing in. You know, definitely. Um, yeah, like that. So that was kind of the thing. So I ended up DJing for this event and. I played hip hop records and I played like old Alice Cooper and Thin Lizzy and stuff that people enjoyed. And we got a huge response. Like people really liked it. Everyone was asking like who it was and or who was doing the DJing and that kind of stuff. So then they asked me to come back again. Um, and I ended up playing a, a larger set the second time around. And um, that it was really interesting. Like the first time it wasn't as intimidating because I was tucked off sort of away. And there was a lot of people that didn't even really know that we were there. But um, by the final year that I had DJ'd, um, they had me basically on the main stage. Um, there was like a sound center or like where the mixing board and everything was at sort of, um, like center audience. And so I wasn't exactly on the stage, but I was like front and center for at least 10,000 people or more. Uh, so that was pretty intimidating. We like <laughs> took, a um, like a, a gator, like a golf cart or whatever up to the grounds and uh, you're just blowing past all these people that have been waiting in line for hours to get inside and you really kind of realize the impact of like what this fest means to these people they come 
from so far and they've been waiting up or they've been up since 4 a.m. or 6 a.m. Mm. out there like trading beers with their friends or doing uh, like samplings out in line and that kind of stuff. I don't know if you've, I'm sure you've seen them, but if you haven't, uh, listeners wise, uh, like if you'll Google photos, there's like bottle kill shots after the fest is done where they've like lined the entire ground with all the bottles that they find laying on the ground. Mm. And it's wild. You'll see like stuff that, you know, these people that had been cellaring for forever or that kind of thing. It's such a unique, unique event. I really was like honored to be able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, for me, that was an event that really drove home this notion that these two things that I really, really enjoy so much can actually, there's a home for all of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that was in Dark Lord 2012, I think. So it was a, a little later, but um, High on Fire was playing and I'm standing in the brewery watching them. And I thought, yeah, this makes sense. I get it now. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. They... Um... And it's cool because, like I said, I mean, while they're not, uh, while it is a heavy focus, that's like they're so well rounded in the things that make their brand what it is. It's like you've got the artwork and the branding, which like they've won awards not only in the brewery but the distillery too for incredible packaging. And then like Nick had those guys uh, make those comic books for them. It's like straight up like Marvel Comics uh, illustrators and stuff like that. I mean. Uh, I had even heard rumors that they like made a video game, like they do. They had did that uh, level eater fest with um, Maria's and Mars or whatever for a long time. It's big Dungeons and Dragons nerds, and like it's definitely um, <clears throat> you know the interests of uh, of Nick are very apparent with the brand, and I think that it's really cool that that level of visibility. Uh, to the general public is available for these kinds of things that are typically, um, I think nerds almost kind of gatekeep them in a certain way. Uh -huh. But it's really nice that uh, that those things are available and kind of pushed into the general public in a certain way, so that they are something that uh, someone in a stroller can see and is knows that it's in the world. Uh, because it's on the shelf at the grocery store when she's going in to buy her bread mm -hmm. or whatever. Well yeah, that's the thing is like beer is the accessible part of the festival, in my opinion, for Dark Lord Day. And, yeah. you know, if someone gets exposed to metal music through that and they're like, well, I maybe kind of like this, then you're introducing them into something new or it could go vice versa as well. You know, yeah, if someone's really into High on Fire, but they're like, who's three Floyds? I don't know, but I'll go check this out. And then they find out what they're really getting into. It's good for everyone. Totally. And that's like another, like the beer part is also really special because you'll go to somewhere like House of Blues or wherever. And I mean, great venues, obviously, but terrible beer prices. It's like um, you go to see a band and you're paying like $18 or something for a tall boy a beer. Mm -hmm. And then or by the time you tip or whatever. Um, three, You've like, paid for the ticket. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> for, for one a fucking single beer. beer. Yeah. And like they keep the beers like pretty reasonable at Dark Lord Day and the like sizes are reasonable like you get a big 16 ounce pint for five bucks or if you get um something high octane they put it in a little nine ouncer or whatever and those are still 10 bucks too so it's like i mean you're never really paying much more than that for a beer and um you're getting like some of the best beers in the world they they usually have like three semi-truck trailers that are just lined with taps and or like refrigeration 
and take. really like pretty awesome guest drafts too. I've yeah. had mm -hmm. I've had insane guest drafts there in the past that were things that um, were brought in specifically for the event that were from you know friends of the brewery that was really special. Yeah, like good luck ever finding any of this stuff ever again. It's mm -hmm. like they were sending in um, like McKellar was sending in all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, we they are we they had the that relationship with them via war pigs and stuff. So they were getting all kinds of wild beers, um, like all those uh, like double spontans and stuff like that. It's like, um, and even some of the rarer uh, like Belgian sour beers and things like that, that it's like, how, like, how did you get this? <laughs> and then, um, and not only that, it's just like um, you walk up and that's just one of like 20 beers on that menu that you can't even make your mind up. Like, mm -hmm. um, you almost have to like strategize how and what you're going to drink because there's like s almost too many options. Um, the strategy is how am I going to crawl home? <laughs> yeah. Know? yeah 100%. How am I going to crawl back to Chicago? <laughs> how do yeah. I get back home? Yeah. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's dive into, uh, 2009 dark Lord. Should, should we have waited this long? You know, I'd say so. It it's, held up better than I thought it would. Yeah, have. I I opened a 2013 or 2014 not long ago, and it was just straight soy sauce. This is actually really really nice. Mm -hmm. Um, like I had always kind of touted that like 2009 was like my favorite run of beers that Three Floyds had ever made, and maybe it was just because I was like a baby in my career there. Um, I had got hired in 2008, and so and it was like shortly after. The Dark Lord Day that they had had that year. So this bottle is actually from the very first Dark Lord Day that I ever worked, um, and so like it does have sentimental value to me. But I remember that year being particularly better than the like the year after, and then so on. Um, but they had also made like a Brudu as uh, their Harvest Ale, and I just I remember that year particular being like I was buying cases of bombers of it at that time and. Um, then later on the year after it's still being good, but just not hitting quite the same. I mean, I remember, uh, super cloudy gumball head from that time too. And I have a uh, pretty fond memories of, uh, of beers in general from that particular, uh, that particular time. I think some of it is linked to sentiment, like you're saying, and a lot of it is also linked to the development of our palate in a certain way too, where um, when you're exposed to something new, you have like this kind of awakening moment with, uh, with the beverage or the food item mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, and then as your, as your palate grows or uh, as you experience more things that are like it, um, it, you change and you develop kind of uh, more opinions about it or you have like a broader base uh from which to build a perspective and then in, in the case of breweries like three floyds and like most breweries that were really around at that time they grew or they went out of business yeah and in the case mm -hmm. of three floyds they definitely did not go out of business they definitely Far grew <laughs> and so i think that when you look at a lot of these beers when you scale things up they're going to change in some way shape or form and it's neither it's not a bad thing necessarily at all it's just those beers are also going to change too so in some ways um 
you have a difference in how it's made, and then you have your palate changing at the same time. Absolutely. And actually, now that we're talking about that, I would I, I would also say that a key part is the um, the growth. Like right around that same time frame, probably in '09 or between 2009 2011, they had really grown quite a bit and started adding equipment that was not necessarily um, cutting corners, but definitely making their life a lot easier. I feel like not to say that the like soul of the beer was lost or anything like that, but it went from these guys really sweating over like homemade equipment and like mastering their craft off of like very punk rock um, kind of brewing, like a brewing style. And then slowly as it became um, the monster that it is now, it's like, um, uh, I think that that uh, over time is definitely like, it's almost, it's for the better, they have more consistent beer and they've got um, like uh, everything's more refined. But that being said, I think that like in my style of cooking and things like that, it seems like um, a lot of the times when you're working with um, like your the least equipment is when you end up with like the best results. Well, that kind of stuff, the simplification. No, definitely. And I think we've actually talked about it on the show before, too. But when you're going from a smaller system where you're over an open flame, direct fire, you're applying that kind of heat that gives a beer that caramelization. It's the same thing when you cook over a stove, you know? Totally. And when you move to those bigger systems, you're, you're ultimately effectively steaming as opposed to using fire. And you, I feel like... And you would probably agree too. You lose that caramelization effect, and you you away. can you can I think um, it it comes down to larger aspects of how recipes are scaled as well, and um, the quality of equipment too. So mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of factors that go into it. Um, ultimately, I actually think that this Dark Lord held up pretty well, all things considered. Mm-hmm. Uh, the age of it is certainly it's old for a beer even that size, but the taste was really, really nice. It still had the some of the chocolate character that you have. It did have age characteristics that you get of... It wasn't quite cardboardy, but it definitely had like a mellower, dark fruit character. The alcohol uh, did not show uh, too much, which was really, really enjoyable for the alcohol, con- for yeah. considering how big of a beer it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, I agree with that 100%. Sometimes that can just kick you in the mouth and like that drink really smooth. I, I honestly... Um, I, most of these beers, I think, for the same reason we all have, is that like I, I would never drink it because I can't drink all of this by myself or whatever, so it's nice to share it, but um, I might even put a little bit more in my glass by the time the, <laughs> the thing is over. And usually just a small amount of Dark Lord is all I really need. Like, mm-hmm. you give me a five-ounce glass, and I'm happy with that because it's usually so hot or like so sticky and like um, uh, tons of sugar content, and I feel like this way it was pretty well-rounded. Definitely. Definitely. If you are holding on to a bottle of Dark Lord 2009, we endorse the decision to uh, drink it. <laughs> crack yeah, it open. Yeah, crack that boy. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's another beer that you brought as well uh, that is in a uh, handmade cloth of some kind. Yeah. Tell um, us about it. <laughs> yeah, so um, it, back in 2008, I believe, um, or right around that same time frame, uh at the original location in Miller Beach, uh, 18th Street Brewery had uh, been emerging. Uh, there'd been like a big chatter, but at the time, I feel like they um, hadn't really done a big, big release. And they had done this uh, Hunter series. It's um, 
a double milk stout that's made with uh, coffee, but they did it as a collaboration with Grindhouse Cafe. Uh, it's a coffee shop in Northwest Indiana. Um, they had Grindhouse help them specifically pick the beans for the brew. Um, they did a limited release, and I didn't even know that it was happening. They like we just went to go visit the brewery the one day, and they said that that it seemed really busy, and people were like kind of aggressively trying to buy this bottle. Luckily, we had had um, a good relationship with Drew Fox from our brewery, and um, I think they might have even either had sold out or had gotten down to the very few last couple. So I ended up buying three of them, I think, or maybe I bought two and they gave me one or something. But um, this also has like a lot of sentimental value. I think I was on like a first date with a girl or something when we <laughs> had gotten this. And then I had also bumped into a regular who had like drove all the way up there for that bottle and wasn't able to get it. So I was able to get him one. And I've been sitting on these two that I have just for the same reason I didn't know when I'd ever drink a big coffee stout by myself. And then they kind of got neglected and my palate sort of changed. So the desire to drink stout was kind of um, not really up there. But it, yeah, it come in this really nice like uh, coffee, like burlap sack bag that the girls at the cafe had um, stitched themselves. And the start of what, to my understanding, the very first and like the start of the uh, Hunter Vertical series, which was, um, they did a bunch of them. There was like vanilla and cherry and orange, and uh, it had really developed into something big. But at the time, they had only had Hunter, which was the double milk stout, and this is the coffee-infused first variation. Mm -hmm. How do we feel about the? How do we feel about the beer itself? This one, I was nervous to crack open. I, I haven't <laughs> taken my sip yet, but um, I know that coffee has like a tendency to go rancid over time. It's definitely gone green. Yeah. Um, very, very vegetal. It's pretty, it is pretty vegetal. Yeah. Um, but I do think that you still get some chocolate and like uh, still the bitterness is held pretty nicely. I think the coffee bitterness is still there. Mm -hmm. um, in a lot of ways and it hasn't gone like i, I don't know i don't think i'm it's tasting not. the same thing of like i'm not getting super green pepper but i am getting uh, a little bit of it but mm -hmm. it's uh it's rather pleasant to where it's kind of short of uh perceiving any spice or anything of the sort mm -hmm. it's very thin too mm. yeah very, very thin yeah the body isn't super huge and i agree i i like I think when you said it, I, I could taste the green pepper a tiny bit, but um, yeah, there's definitely still a nice roast from and like bitterness from that coffee coming through. I always liked Hunter, the, that series. The, like some of the variants, like the orange and things like that weren't totally my thing, but um, the coffee always was a really nice, uh, nice version in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, this first batch, again, I remember uh, we like drank it on draft and having like that moment of like, oh man, this is what a coffee beer should taste like. Wasn't it fun to have a time when you could just walk into a brewery and there would be a release of this type unknowingly <laughs> right. without, there. without there being a line <laughs> or any uh, any kind of additional fanfare? The brewery probably wanted more people there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm pretty sure they sold out. So, But at the same time, yeah, no, I, I can relate to that 100%. Like, um, that was another thing at Floyd's even. I remember, like, 
that growth period because when we first worked behind the bar we didn't have like a kiosk or anything like that like we have now where they were buying beer to go we just kept um like cases of beer behind the bar they could fit like four varieties of beer four cases per beer so there was like 16 cases of beer behind the beer at all or uh, behind the bar at all times so little by little um We'd sell a case here and there, or from time to time, somebody would go crazy and want to buy like three cases of Pride and Joy or something. Um, but then it started getting so bad that um, like to go beer started focus, like was our main focus. And um, we started having to hire a bar back, which we like never had to do before. It was um, pretty chill. So like we could handle pretty much everything. And then um, the to-go beer started getting so wild that we started having to bring in extra help for that. And then, um, then that became its own job, like, um, to where now there's just a guy running back and forth from the storage with a dolly trying to like replenish the beer. Um, that would get like, got to the point where we actually had to put like limitations on how much beer people could buy because they're like the explosion of gumball head. And then, um, I think mostly Gumball Head, people were dri driving from um, like liquor stores and stuff nearby and restocking their shelves. And then people were um, like traveling from out of town and uh, bringing like U-Hauls and literally buying like dollies worth of beer at a time to bring back to their friends back home, which I mean, was nice to know that we were getting that kind of coverage, but also at the same time, it was really hard for the local guests to be able to try to enjoy something that they knew was theirs mm -hmm. and watching it go out the door to these people that um hadn't like most of the, the regulars at the time they also had like taken investors so a big part of the reason that that brew pub was able to open was because of the local crowd or whatever so that was sort of sad those days when you started having to explain to these people that like a the people that you were happy that they were traveling so far to be able to have to tell them like hey man i'm sorry but you can only get a couple cases and they're like man we just drove from pennsylvania or whatever mm -hmm. it's like dude i'm sorry there's nothing i can do and then the same people it's like locals or whatever that are, it's like that's oh, my kid's graduation party and we need <laughs> eight cases of the beer or whatever it's like well sorry like you can thank these guys that are uh doing that kind of thing so fortunately there's enough beer for everyone now right? <laughs> yeah yeah 100 the the growth is really outrageous and uh yeah, I'm starting to see in it, seeing it in all kinds of stores these days. That's like the Marianos or the even the Cermak produce by my house has got six packs of gumball heads. So yeah, readily. I mean, I was even able to get zombie dust up in McHenry. There the you go. Day, so oh, that's cool. It's yeah. Great. Yeah. Should we uh, should we jump into some? Uh, we promised ourselves we'd talk about albums today too, right? Oh, I oh, guess yeah. we some, <laughs> some, some albums we've enjoyed from, uh, from from 2020 so far. I think as kind of a primer for this conversation, obviously this has been kind of a weird uh, a weird year in a lot of ways as far as the industry chugging along in the music industry chugging along in February, and then things taking a nosedive, and so there was quite a bit of time where we probably would have seen a lot of releases come out that uh, just didn't happen. So I think it'll be interesting to see uh, how these things get rescheduled throughout the year. Uh, nonetheless, I think there was quite a bit of great stuff to, uh, to dig into for what was effectively four months of the music industry this year. And even 
Uh, some may argue it's shorter because labels don't really find a rhythm with releases until February. So, Greg, do you want to kick off with uh, an album or two that were your favorites thus far? Yeah, sure. Um, there's there. I mean, I didn't really have a ton of. Uh, I didn't really listen to a, a lot of new stuff this year, to be honest. But there were a few albums that stuck out um, specifically in bands I've been keeping an eye on for a while, anyways. But um, the new in the company of serpents I really liked a lot. That Lux, um, that record killed. It's like got a lot. The you can tell that their influences are like really shine on that record. There's a lot of uh, like musical differences um i catch like um some really like gruff vocals and some clean vocals and that kind of stuff and um overall i've always liked that band and uh, i really dug that like super heavy sound and then this came around and i felt like it was a little bit more um diverse than their earlier recordings did you dj the night that they played at scorched tundra i think i did actually um, if I remember right, I like specifically picked that day because I wanted to see them play. <laughs> um, yeah, I really like that band a lot. Uh, my friend Rob, um, I don't really know how to say his last name. It's like O'Brocka or something. He's, um, a ta- or he's a tattoo artist in Denver, but he moved there from, uh, from Chicago. And he's like friends with a bunch of my friends and uh, cool graffiti artists and tattoo artists and that kind of stuff. And so he had mentioned uh, like years ago that he had, made friends with this band in Denver and that they really wanted to play Dark Lord Day. He kept trying to um, kind of plug them to me. And unfortunately, as much of a tie as I did have with that brewery, they kind of had the Dark Lord Day thing under control. They booked all their own bands and that kind of stuff. So even if I loved a band, it wouldn't really matter. They sort of had their thing figured out. So like, but I checked them out anyways, and I really loved them. And if it had been up to me, they definitely would have been on Dark, the Dark Lord Day lineup. I really thought their sound was killer. Um, I ups to Rob for turning me onto that band and then um, finding out that you had had a good relationship with them as well and um, seeing them on Scorched Tundra and that kind of thing really brought together that it wasn't just good music, that they got to be good people too, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. So. Very easy to work with, very lovely people. Um, I would have been interesting to have seen them. I think... The, show, the run of shows that they'd booked around Tundra was the first time they were uh, playing out as a three-piece, too, because historically they had, uh, it had just been uh, guitar and drums, as far as I, as I recall. So it was interesting to see them play as a three-piece, and it certainly filled out uh, a lot of sound and, yeah, shook the shit out of the empty bottle, that's for sure. <laughs> Definitely, yeah, that whole night. I mean, it's such a small venue, and it's cool to see, like, really big metal or like big sounding metal bands there like um i remember when they did that like high on fire uh, new year's eve back-to-back thing mm-hmm. that was so crazy seeing that band in that room it's <laughs> like i was standing on those steps kind of like uh, stage right or whatever and uh man like you're at basically like face level with the hanging pas and like jesus it was so loud <laughs> you can feel matt pike yelling at you <laughs> yeah yeah 100 yeah, <laughs> it's like that um uh, like come to daddy video or whatever. <laughs> like, but, but yeah. Um, so yeah, I really like that record a lot. Um, that band temple of void put out a new record. Mm-hmm. I really liked that a lot. I like that band. Um, I saw them at uh, metal threat fest, um, at Reggie's. I was like, I didn't even know they were, well, I mean, I saw them on the lineup, but I didn't realize they were playing and I had stepped from the large room into the small room 
while they were playing and I just remember like kind of forgetting that there was other stuff happening I like locked into that band and ended up buying their LP after their performance was over and um, yeah that new record really kills um, and uh, that new Midnight record uh, mm, Rebirth yeah. of Blasphemy mm-hmm. that band's so fun um, uh, lyrical content's a little goofy but I mean I think that's the point <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean like su- super high energy and like, um, there's such a fun band live and, uh, their artwork is always so bonkers and they like, they do really cool covers too. I really like they did that like shocks of violence EP with, the uh, the like digital version had, uh, had league with Satan and like a couple mm-hmm. of other really great covers on it. But yeah, they're a fun band and that new record was really good. I know they were set to do the bottle of this. I think it was what February or March too. Yeah, it yeah. was uh, February, March. So yeah. hopefully that can get rescheduled because yeah, they're really awesome live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw them at Reggie's uh, with that. They also put out a new record. That band Shitfucker, um, they put out a new record this year too, and that's like um, they're such a wild band. Um, I won't go into all the details if you're not into like shock performance, but if you've ever seen them live, they definitely are some. Uh, that's a wild show. Um, <laughs> with a name it. like shit, with okay. a name like shit fucker, you never think you don't know what you're getting. Yeah, to say the, to <laughs> say the least, it's a, uh, a wild show. Um, there's this band Elephant Tree. I don't know if you've heard them. I really mm. like that new record they put out a lot. It's like um, good for the days where I like. I don't know. I just don't feel like listening to something super heavy, but it still kind of keeps some of those elements of those like stonery doom. Um, tones and that kind of stuff i really like that record mm-hmm. um i don't remember the name of it to be honest but i played it a lot when it came out a couple of weeks or a month ago or something oh that aranzi pazuzu yeah um, i think <laughs> i saw that on your list too that's a, a crowd favorite here i think yeah mm-hmm. man that band rules um so like such a chaotic sound but in like the best way mm-hmm. it'll leave you on the edge of your seat clawing out your eyeballs <laughs> yeah i mean look i was really happy to see uh to see that band uh get picked up by a larger label too, nuclear blast i think this was their first album on nuclear blast and i think that um uh a label like that tends to uh you know if they choose a debut band it's something that's highly marketable if it's something like this this is this is difficult to market in a lot of ways, and, totally. but there, but there really is a market. And I think that it's, uh, it's exciting when a larger label that probably doesn't need to dabble in this sound, uh, identifies it and says, Hey, like, this is something we want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, a little similar to, uh, I mean, although there's precedence for them working with this, but, uh, signing earthless a couple of years ago as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've worked with graveyard and, uh, a couple of other bands from the genre. So that's not as surprising as this, but really a fantastic band. They were supposed to come to Chicago. Mm-hmm. It? it was, it, it just passed. It was, it, it, it was, was supposed to be June this spring, May, right? Yeah. They yeah. were supposed yeah. to come as well, unfortunately. Um, however, uh, I'm sure that they'll make their way back this way. Uh, at some point, but I was able to see them at Roadburn a couple of years ago on the the large stage, and um, yeah, it took me about half an hour to crawl my way up to a good viewing spot, but once I did, <laughs> I was very, very happy. Uh, really fantastic sound, really shows live, and it was 
insane to see it in a huge place with like 4,000 people. So in a place that maybe holds 400 people, <laughs> yeah. it's going to be pretty awesome. <laughs> It'll be also interesting to see how, you know, that many people can fit on a stage, but, um, you know, where there's a will, there's a way, right? <laughs> Always. Definitely. Um, I really liked that new Elder, too. Um, I don't know if it's my favorite record that they put out or anything, but um, I really liked that full length they put out right before this. There was like an EP between their last full length and this one. I really liked those two releases a lot, that EP and that LP. But this new record I thought was really good. It's a good extension of their sound and new material that I like. I've enjoyed everything they've played out. I've only seen that band once. I saw it. Speaking of like a small room, I saw them at the at the Burlington, and it was like. Uh, I think we went to go see Bloodiest, and then uh, they might have played too. I went with Steve Smeko, and like we, um, uh, that those speakers in that room are so huge. And I just remember being like the same thing, like having my just my face blown off by the those speakers. So it was those small rooms, right? Totally, they just get you. I remember seeing Ringworm at a Liars Club. Oh, Which wow. you're like, why here of all the Chicago venues? Totally. You know they're going to pack it out. And, you know, they did. We lined up pretty early to get in. But it just destroyed us both sonically and then packing that many people into Liars Club. And it was it was rough. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's fun, though. I mean, that's uh, like, like I said, growing up on punk music, it's kind of um, the way I'm used to. Uh, it's like going to a place like House, even House of Blues or whatever, or Metro even, it feels like almost out of uh like off brand for me it's like i'm used to going to basement shows and mm -hmm. small stuff like that and so i still enjoy the the like you go to a bigger venue and you get quality sound a lot of the times and that kind of thing there's seeing a metal band on a stage like that is uh kind of like the way it was meant to be i feel like but um but it's still like getting to the, like a place like empty bottle is my one of my favorite venues in the city just because be a lot to do with the size of the room and also the bands that they book for that room. It's like um, most of these bands should almost be playing in a, like a slightly larger venue than that spat. But Definitely. it always ends up so fun because the, like you see all your old friends and um, the bar is a great place to hang out, that kind of thing. So. Definitely. It's yeah. I mean, uh, I have a little bit of bias towards that place, but it, it's definitely it, it feels like it could be someone's basement in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Um, and I think that that has to do with how it's lit. That has to do the the layout is really unique for a venue too. I mean, to have that kind of odd uh, L shape is yeah. really really yeah. cool. Um, it, it's laid out differently from a lot of venues and. Like, I think apart from maybe, like, the Underworld in Camden in London, that's the only place that I've seen that really has that same kind of weird L layout. But anywhere you go, the sound is really, really great in that venue. And so, um, it, you know, by virtue of it being open every day, it's also a little bit like your friend's basement in a mm -hmm. lot of ways. It's, yeah. Totally. Um, and then there was, like, a couple of, like, honorable mention things that I thought I would bring up. Um, I saw High on Fire did a couple of represses uh, that recently that I was excited about. There's a um, Snakes of the Divine and uh, the Verimus Mysterious uh, both got like an anniversary repress. So just being a vinyl collector or anybody that's listening to this for being a vinyl nerd, you probably already know. But um, that was exciting to see the Snakes of the Divine was like a record I feel like I kind of slept on from that band just because Death is this communion and Plus Black Wings, like those records were so good. And then 
Um, I, I listened to Snakes of the Divine a couple of times, but then uh, Devere Mysterious hit me so hard. Like, that record was so fucking good. And then um, I went back and listened to Snakes of the Divine after, like, not giving it a ton of attention and really kind of, like, kicked myself for not paying more attention because there's so many bangers on that record. Definitely. Um, so, yeah, those two uh, represses were exciting. And then I saw that they put um, an, the Orange 9mm LP uh, got a repress, which I thought was kind of cool. That was, like... One of my first like early bands getting into when I was younger. It's like Revelation Records was like a really big influence on me when I was young. Um, I loved all the hardcore bands that were on that label, like Gorilla Biscuits and Youth of Today and stuff like that. And Orange Nine Millimeter was definitely like one of the weirder bands on that label, but it was um, it definitely had a huge impact on like I think my taste being as diverse as they are was um, just kind of a different sound for me. And, a big influence on my like growing up and I I don't think up until now I've ever seen that on vinyl so I don't know if it was a repress or if it just uh, is finally seeing the light of day but I was excited to know that I can go and buy that now one of these days and then um, uh, Enslaved put out a new 7 inch I haven't had a chance to listen to it but I was just going to say that I wish more bands, metal bands put out 7 inches so I don't have to carry your LPs to my DJ gigs <laughs> it's like Lighten my load a little bit, please. Every record label and band that's listening, heed Greg's advice, because I agree as well. <laughs> yeah, it's a nightmare. It's like, I, I mean, I'll, I'll play your whole record. I don't give a shit. But it's like, if I want to try to change it up, it's really hard to bring like crates on crates on crates of LPs. And I think the world deserves to hear these records. And it would be a lot more convenient for me. to. I think to... <laughs> in the case of that Enslaved album, it was supposed to come out early in the year and then it got pushed. And so they did like a, they did like a single treatment for, was it uh homeward? I think is the song. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. 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 And then, yeah. And, uh, they put out that, uh, I mean, those are covers, but that, uh, bat salad, bat salad, seven inch got a repress too, which was mm-hmm. exciting. Cause I didn't get that first round. So I'll probably go grab that soon. And, while we're on the topic of covers, uh, I mentioned it when I got here, but I've been plugging this uh, Thou Nirvana's LP, Nirvana LP. It's um, like a bunch of covers that they did from some like singles and collections that they had did, and I, there might be some unreleased material on it too. But it was funny because growing up punk, I like I think it was kind of instilled in your brain that like Nirvana was like po- like a poser band, a poser punk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or like whatever. I mean, maybe it was like the pretentious, I mean, it was pretentious, but like I definitely never listened to that band cause I always thought it was, um, it was for posers. And then like, um, <laughs> as I got older, uh, I kept that same mentality. And then the, like I had heard some of these Nirvana tracks on thou records without even realizing that they were Nirvana songs. Like I didn't, I listened to like nevermind and in utero and then, uh, and we all know what happened and the lack of music after that. And then I just um, found punk like around that same time and like split pretty hard. I, but I was in that same age group when all those songs were really popular. So there's like some nostalgia factor to this LP because like I said, I had heard some of these tracks before, but they put like In Bloom on there and um, like some songs that I knew really well and uh, that was sound is just so fucking heavy. Like every cover I've ever heard them do, they did like um, four Black Sabbath tracks for uh, like a EP that they had put out, and those songs are so heavy too. I got to see that they did at Sub T. They did um, like an entire set of those Black Sabbath songs. It was so fucking good. Um, 
I, lo- I love that band so much. And it was like, it's weird. It's like a conflict of interest listening to this because you almost like, I feel weird listening to these songs that I know I made fun of beforehand. <laughs> but like Nirvana did such, or like Thou did such a good job that I don't care. They're so heavy. Um, I'm a big fan of that record for sure. What about cool. uh, what about for you, Sam? We don't have to do all of our top, uh, yeah. all of our tops. But what are some highlights for you? I'll just do uh, I'll do three, and I'll start with the first one that I'm gonna butcher the name of because I do not speak French. But here we go. It's- Sam is the official spokesperson in America for Peaceville <laughs> for Seasons of Mist, not seasons, Peaceville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like a lot of the Peaceville record yeah, no, stuff. But uh, Seasons of the Mist, you're about to get uh, all three of my shout outs right now. So there you go. <laughs> uh, regard Le Homes Tomber. Totally butchered it. Throw the book at me. But this is a rad. Uh, black metal debut from this band the production is just unbelievable it's drowned out at times but the swells that it goes through leading into the typical blast metal kind of beats and aggression that you're um you're used to it's just it kind of sets it apart from a lot of the other bands uh in my opinion uh even for this record label which does a lot of black metal and stuff like that um Next is Sylvain did a split with Unrequited, and this is definitely a detraction from what Sylvain has done in the past. Um, It's way more stripped down. It's, um, I believe her name is uh, Catherine. It's just her on a piano or an acoustic with minimal kind of ambient sounds in the background. Just her voice is absolutely beautiful. Uh, when she's singing, but in the full band stuff, she also screams, but there's very minimal of that on this split. And on that note, she is the sole songwriter for the band, so it's just kind of cool to see it stripped down to just her doing something that she could do by herself, which I anticipate was what she was going to do at Roadburn this year, which unfortunately we're going to have to wait and see if that'll happen again. But um, yeah. I really like it. Uh, unrequited side of the split is also quite nice. There's a lot of nature kind of element sounds with a uh, very ambient, uh, full band, drowned out black metal. It's awesome. really, really good. Last is Thy Catafalk. Uh, it's just avant-garde as fuck. It goes jazzy. It's uh, metal. It's doom. It's uh, It breaks down in weird time signatures. There's horns, there's melodies. If you like weird stuff, it's really good, and I definitely recommend it. Cool. I haven't heard it, actually. I'll check that yeah, out. Yeah, it's it's cool. I, I It gets progressive at weird times. It's Yeah, I'll definitely uh, send you it. Yeah, cool. I mean, it's, it's almost... Uh, there's so much jazz in the structure of what that album is, and the, um, the ideas behind it aren't from a metal musician. No, definitely not. It's uh, someone who's got a firm grasp on music theory, and I guarantee you likes jazz and also likes metal. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, what about you, Alexi? Yeah, so uh, a couple of the things that I was interested in uh, were mentioned, so I'm going to skip those. Uh, a couple of, I like the shout-outs, so I want to do a couple of shout-outs <laughs> or um, honorable mentions in some way before I <laughs> dig into uh, my favorites. 
uh, Riding Easy put out the instrumental versions of the first two Mono Lord albums, and mm -hmm. uh, that was a, a very, very, very delightful development earlier this year, I thought. Um, Have you listened to Empress Rising like 40 more times this year? Yeah, that, <laughs> album, that album got a second life with me in a lot of ways. That's awesome. Um, you know, uh, obviously fantastic band, uh, as evinced by all the times I've booked them, uh, both here and in Sweden, but really, really uh, uh, illuminating to listen to those without, uh, without vocals. Um, you should listen to it both ways. And then uh, on the same subject as well, uh, Thomas Jagger uh, is putting out an instrumental album. Uh, at some point, I believe it's in July or August. The uh, singer who's not included on the instrumental, <laughs> whose voice is not on the I instrumental, he's but still on the, he's still on still the record, on the record as a guitar player. <laughs> Nonetheless, you can hear even more of him uh, in his uh, solo material that's going to come out, I believe, in, again, July or August. Uh, but there's two singles up on Spotify uh, that are really fantastic. Uh, does not really sound like uh, Monolord, but uh, definitely sounds like Thomas if you know him as a person. So... Uh, strongly recommend uh, giving those a whirl. Um, on top of that, on the uh, topic of Sweden, uh, I'm going to give a shout out to a couple of different bands that uh, I know or have worked with over the years or that I've kind of admired in this. Um, first uh, being uh, Yuri Gagarin, uh, named for the Russian cosmonaut. Um, their third album, The Outskates, uh, Outskirts of Reality, I thought was really fantastic. Um, there was a small like uh mail order that looked like it was run by a person uh i mean by a private in a private <laughs> individual uh that i bought the record from uh that was really fantastic um a lot of different uh dynamics they don't they they're not playing in the pocket in the same way that they were before uh there's definitely a strong feel still of a bit of improvisation in what they're doing and what they're recording but there's um different tempo and a different pace to the songs here that uh, shakes up a little bit of the formula of this like, uh, you know, psychedelic uh, mid-tempo, uh, somewhat Kraut-inspired uh, metal. So definitely give that a listen. Uh, also, I, I was walking, I don't know, I've been like wandering outside and a bunch just like getting sun and thinking and shit. And... Uh, I listened to the new Horizons album called Sudden Death, and it was sunny, and I was smiling and, like, just skipping down the street. It was really, really great. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I've been able to see them a couple times here. I think they've played Reggie's a few times, but uh, really fantastic band from Gothenburg. Uh, definitely a bit of 70s flair in what they do. Uh, instrumentally driven, their vocalist has a pretty awesome range, especially on the higher register, so... Uh, if any of that sounds appealing, I would definitely check it out. Um, and then uh, Ocean Chief uh, putting out, uh, I think it's their third album, uh, Dentrea Dagen, which is the third day uh, on Argonata Records. Which I definitely recommend checking that label out. Um, but if uh, if there was to be a Swedish uh, Slowmatics or Conan, this would be the band in a lot of ways. Um, uh, the album's entirely in Swedish too, uh, so I would be as troubled as Sam's French to uh, get into <laughs> the title names, but um, it's a really fantastic album if anything that's slow and uh, kind of brooding is uh, is up your alley. I would really recommend those. Um, 
Also, the new uh, Nagelfar album, a band I hadn't really thought about in a really long time. I think there was like a period of inactivity, um, but they put out some uh, pretty straightforward and aggressive uh, Swedish. I mean, I would call it almost like northern Swedish black metal, where it's from a similar world as like uh, Dark Funeral. Uh, very, very clean and slick production, very high master. So it sounds like he's like the drummer's in your ears. It's pretty awesome. Uh, cool. uh, Sarah Cloth is the name of this album. Uh, also uh, coming out on Century Media. Really fantastic for uh, if you're looking for. Yeah, I mean, Swedish black metal. If you don't know what that is, figure it out. Yeah. It's really, really awesome. You need it. You need More it. More than you think. Yeah, you and I it. thought the production on this was really good, too. It was a little bit different than, like, uh, Pariah or Shiel or some of their uh, efforts from the early 2000s. Uh, fantastic album. So, yeah, should we drink a little more beer, too? Yeah, we're here, right? Yeah. Let's do it. So since Greg brought uh, brought some things from uh, from the past, I brought a couple things from the past as well that were uh, interesting in a way of kind of beers that came into my life at a certain point uh, that was uh, formulating for me. So uh, these are both from Firestone Walker uh, Brewery in California that... Uh, has a very strong history of doing fantastic barrel-aged beers. Uh, you've probably seen their 805. Any, any listener from the States has probably seen 805, but their growth trajectory has been really, really interesting, and their barrel-aged beers have been uh, really, really uh, fantastic over the years. There's a strong element of like blending and winemaking that goes into uh, everything that they do. Um, and... This, uh, the two beers that we have here are what is now called Sakaba, but at the time was called, uh, all the old money people out there will know this as Abacus, uh, which is a barley wine aged, I think, 11 months on bourbon barrels, and then uh, Parabola, an imperial stout, uh, also aged on bourbon barrels for uh, 11 or 12 months. And I think there's like a variety of the, of the barrels too, as far as different aging times uh, blended to for taste. These beers came about at a unique time for me as well. Um, in 2011, I started working at, uh, listeners will probably remember, I started working at Local Option, which was a very, very well-known uh, beer bar in Chicago. They were definitely pretty early on the beer and metal thing as well. Uh, I may or may not have been a part of that, uh, <laughs> but uh, I remember one of the big things that we did at that beer bar was putting on these events where we would, I mean, we always had very, very good beer on tap, but we would tap really kind of exceptionally rare and hard to find things at these events. And the same people that probably drove to Three Floyds would also come to these events uh, in a lot of ways. And these two beers were features at the at these events pretty regularly when they were available, so once a year. But I remember um, now the Parabola and the uh, Sacaba that we have are 2011, 2012. So they're from around that same time. And I remember drinking these in the same exact manner, kind of side by side, and being super duper blown away, uh, having never had... Um, Especially like this, the Sakaba really kind of, we can start with that too, like really 
opened my mind up to what big ass barley wines aged in bourbon barrels can taste like. And especially with, um, you know, a little bit of an English flair to it. Age didn't fuck that beer up at all. That's no. really tasty. Yeah. That's delicious. That's you kinda... know what it did do? It killed that alcohol uh, right up front. You know, it's very pleasant. Yeah, I mean, I feel 10 degrees warmer now after uh -huh. after swallowing some of that. Wow, but, yeah. Um, That's yeah. really nice, though. Yeah. Yeah, nice. it's it's beautiful, like, caramel, deep biscuit. Um, and then that, like, bourbon, vanilla, light marshmallows, just fantastic on that top is... of it. That is dessert in a glass for sure. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so I, I, you know, I would say that it's kind of weird seeing these beers in stores now in like a smaller format because I think that these are beers that age well in large bottles and that kind of should be shared. And it's good enough to drink 22 ounces in a lot yeah. of ways. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, the the more I drink it, the more like a toasted marshmallow kind of flavor profile just warps over your tongue. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah like so brulee kind of sugar mm -hmm. almost. Yeah, and I think with um, with aged beers, you can get some type of like old hop flavor or like a almost like an herbal quality too that sometimes is a byproduct of that like aged oxidized profile where you get like cardboard and like very herbal profile can come at the same time but uh that's managed to not be the case here and with the beer that's yeah the better part of 10 years old is pretty awesome yeah mm -hmm. i feel like you can almost still kind of taste the hop a little bit but it's not like in it like you mentioned it's not in a bad way at all you definitely that was like i almost felt like there was still some little bit of bitterness in it and trying to decide if that's from that like brulee sugar like you mentioned or Hot, but it definitely is leaning. Uh, I'm getting a lot of that, like that little bit of lingering bitterness. I really like that a lot. Mm -hmm. It's good. I'm really excited for this uh, parabola too. So I'm gonna <laughs> dig yeah. into this too. For me, when this beer is fresh, um, the big characteristics that you get are that uh, vanilla tannic character. And you get like a big chocolate profile too, and some mocha, but not a lot as there isn't actually uh, coffee in it, but you get like a deeper roast, uh, bitter, just general kind of dark malt profile to it. I think that that's, all those characteristics still kind of stand in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, almost got like um like rich, like stone fruit or something like a, like over, or like, or something mm -hmm. yeah i think um that really nice kind of pitted fruit uh apricot plum exactly like is a characteristic of the age that we've seen across all these beers but has come across in a really like kind of pleasant manner yeah absolutely um and again kind of like short of that like cardboard that we would always mm -hmm. associate with like too old or not aged correctly yeah so yeah. we did a nice job salaring these, Greg. Yeah, for real. Thanks for sharing. Um, <laughs> the, I, I was kind of shocked. The, like I said, the 18th Street one, I was really worried about. It's basically been in my refrigerator, so it's probably been like overcooled than, rather than this preferred cellar temp that I dope. But at least I knew it was away from light and um, probably preserved pretty well. So um, 
And it turned, yeah, everything has been delicious. That dark bird was really nice. Oh, these firestones are both, especially like the like you said, to drink them side by side is a really nice. Um, they like complement each other really well. Mm -hmm. And I think like uh, a lot of these beers and the recipes behind them um, are really kind of a snapshot of a specific time in beer and specific ways of making these types these styles of beer maybe less so the 18th street but certainly like the dark lord the parabola and the sacaba of this pre-lactose sugar free uh like building body using really long long boils and using the raw ingredients in a certain uh in a certain manner to build out like a mouthfeel um instead of using adjuncts, which is uh, part of why I think these have aged really well, too, is because the foundation is really sound. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So, uh, Greg, why don't you uh, tell everyone where people can find you on social media and what's, uh, what's kind of coming up in your world? Sure, sure. Um, so I run an Instagram account. I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but the, it's called Metal Vinyl Weekend. It's all one word. Um, it's uh, sort of a, it's like I mentioned, it, initially it was sort of slides like a playlist, but now it's sort of developed into a little bit more than that. And so you can kind of find me um, doing, hopefully, <laughs> I was going to say you could find me doing DJ sets, but with all <laughs> the uh, social distancing and stuff, I don't quite know exactly how that's going to happen. Um, I also, I didn't have a chance to plug this earlier, but I do an event called Metal Movie Nights. Um, it's a feature that we do at the Music Box Theater. Um, it was a lot of fun. It's a friend of mine, Chris Larkin, who's been doing screenings all across the south suburbs, sort of like Blue Island and Homewood area. Um, he used to do these fun, like double features. Uh, he has like a inflatable screen that he would do like outdoor screenings and stuff. And so he had asked me to join him. He had this idea to do like metal themed movies um whether it be a heavy metal soundtrack or someone from the metal community in the the cast or whatever um but so we do that there and i do like a two uh, two hour ish dj set in the lounge first and then we do a screening uh usually like a midnight showing on the weekend but um we've done a lot of fun ones we started with um deathgasm um that was a lot of fun we like uh they, we got a really good response there's like uh a lot of people that showed up for our first one and then since then we've done hell cop and we did uh mandy which we got a really great response from too um we had been scheduled to do the Cinepocalypse screening um but that got canceled unfortunately but we're hoping as soon as things can go back to normal that we'll get back to doing that again soon um there's uh also, a distillery in Thornton, Illinois, that I have uh, I booked a, like an oddities market there, and I hope to be doing more work with them in the future. They have a bar there called The Well, and then they have a product called Dead Drop, which is um, some whiskey and gin, and they have a really fantastic old distillery that has like links to Al Capone and um, was like at one point uh, Illinois' uh, oldest brewery. Um, they were like running booze even during like prohibition era. It's a really cool location with a lot of history and 
So I've uh, I've booked I booked resin and loom and um, relayer or relayer however they say it relayer right? Yeah, relayer. Yeah, um, I booked the, the, all of them there and uh, it went really well. We had um, a great sound and uh, like lighting guy, so um, it turned out really well. We got a good response and we're hoping to do more shows there in the future. But as far as the, uh, anything else, I think that's I think that might be it. Um, I have a Facebook account, but I don't use it very often. It's mostly all uh, Instagram for the Metal Vinyl Weekend. Um, and, yeah, just kind of keep an eye out in the future. I'm hoping to do some food pop-ups. Uh, a buddy of mine has a, a, a hookup in northwest Indiana. He um, does, like, a monthly pop like food pop-ups. And a bunch of the guys from Three Floyds that, uh, if you haven't heard, unfortunately, the brew pub is now indefinitely closed for a little while which a lot of my friends lost their jobs unfortunately and they're all really talented so this has been kind of like an incubator for them to um send out their their constructive uh like artistic uh creativity out the door so um i've been working on some recipes myself and i'm hoping to do something with him down the road and when i do that there will be a big update on the on the instagram account and that kind of thing cool Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, guys. That's uh, Greg Elzinga, and I'm Sam. You can find me on Instagram at Sam, C-A-N-G-E, and joining me is... And I'm Alexi. You can find... uh, You should find everything pertaining to this podcast on Scorched Tundra's uh, social media, Uh, and also there's the uh, Heavy Hops, uh, Heavy underscore Hops uh, Instagram for this uh, specific podcast. Thanks for everyone uh, for joining us. Uh, There's going to be some pretty sick episode notes for you to find some links to the music that we've been talking about. And we'll look forward to uh, joining you next time. Thank you. Mm